everyone, welcome to the Renaissance Project, a Black girls movement. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Chase Clark, and I'm thrilled to have you join me on this journey of liberation and conversation. Hello, family, and welcome back to the Renaissance Project. I am your wonderful host, Chase Clark, and today we are here with our last episode of the Chase Your Dream series, and I'm joined by a wonderful guest, Dr. India Fry. She's a pediatrician with the Greensboro Pediatrics. She's a graduate from A&T State University and East Carolina University, a lover of the movies Major Pain and The Wedding Planner, and the granddaughter of Henry Fry and Shirley Fry. I would love to welcome you to the show. Hey, Chase. So glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad to have you here. We'll get right into the question. Sounds good. Okay, my first question for you is, what does it mean to you to chase your dreams? Great question. What it means to me to chase my dreams is to see what your passion is within your heart Mm -hmm. and to go after it no matter what obstacles you face. And so that dream may change as time goes on, as you learn about what you feel in your heart that you've been called to do. So Chasing your dreams, I feel, is going after your calling or going after your purpose. Amen to that. And the concept of chasing your dreams is something that is seemingly embedded in your genetics. Your grandfather, Henry Fry, was a justice. He graduated in 1959 with honors from the law school at the University of North Carolina. And he was actually the first African-American to enter the UNC Law School as a first-year student, which was something that I didn't even know. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1963, he became the first African-American assistant to the U.S. District Attorney, and five years later, he won a seat in the North Carolina General Assembly. No other African-American had been elected to the General Assembly since 1899. After serving in the House of Representatives from 1969 until 1980, he was elected to the state Senate. In 1983, Fry was appointed to the North Carolina Supreme Court, and in 1999, Governor Jim Hunt tapped him to be the Chief Justice of the United of the State Supreme Court. This was the first time an African-American had sat on the highest judicial bench in North Carolina. And your grandmother, Shirley Fry, was an educator for multiple years and serves as the pre- president for the YWCA, which is awesome because um, I'm on the board of directors, so pretty much comes full circle for me. And she, the building was named after her on September 15, 2016, which is my brother's birthday. So that was just all very coincidental. So how has knowing your history and having this history helped you in preparing for your future? Chase, that's a great question. I will say, you know, being from Greensboro, the Fry name I know has had a lot of weight and history behind it. But I will say having my grandparents, I have really just seen their humility about it. They really haven't put themselves on a pedestal to say, this is what I've done or anything like that. It kind of goes about chasing your dreams. So they feel like it is their calling to give back to those that maybe don't have the voice that they can give it to society. And so, you know, as a young child, we would go to things like my grandfather got sworn in or different things that involved the governor and other things within the political arena and within the community. But I think without the whole process, it really didn't fully understand, I don't want to say understand, or just grasp the the depth of the history that they were developing and still are going forward. And even right now, I'm still learning more and more about what they're doing and what they're 
striving to do to make Greensboro and North Carolina a better place. And so how does that play into how I've done and going forward? I just say I look at them as my role models and saying that I can achieve my potentials because I see that they can do it and I can do anything that I put my mind to, which is something not only that I say to myself, but my patients, my family, my friends. Yeah. And that just, I mean, reiterates something that we talked about last episode about representation and how representation can really propel um, a child or an adult to become everything that they want to be. So I really applaud you for becoming a pediatrician because up to um, being in your office, that was the first time I think I've ever seen a black female pediatrician. Um, You know, you watch Grey's Anatomy, but I don't really think that they had a black female pediatrician. I don't know. I don't really watch it that often, but I really do applaud you because at the time when I did come into your office for the first time, I wanted to be a pediatrician. So being able to see you in all of your glory, wearing your braids, wearing the cool shoes, I was like, so maybe this is a dream that's obtainable because when I first um, thought of being a pediatrician, I always think of uh, like a stiff white guy <laughs> with a nice close cut and, you know, the the Dapper Dan shoes, but seeing you, it really, um, it it told me that it was okay to be who I am in, in any space, whatever I wanted to do. So I really thank you for that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> and while we're on the topic of your journey, in a report published by the Greensboro News and Record, you explained that you were diagnosed with systemic lupus at the age of 12. Do you mind giving us a brief explanation of what systemic lupus is? Yes. Um, so systemic lupus um, or erythematosus, SLE, is an autoimmune disease. Um, autoimmune meaning that your body's own immune system fights against your own body. So that can affect your brain to your heart, to your lungs, to your kidneys, to your skin. And so currently there's no cure for lupus. The treatments are just really symptomatic. So dealing with how lupus affects your body. So example, for myself, Lupus has affected several parts of my body, and now it's under control, which is great. Um, but one of the main things is the kidneys and the skin and things of that sort. And so people who battle with lupus or lupus warriors, each day they have their own battles, but they can fight it and they work together, but it can be very mild to be very severe. So there have been people who have passed away from complications from lupus, and those who walk day to day, so somebody who looks at me necessarily knew right. that I have lupus, but it's nothing that I keep secret. It's just if you talk to me about it, I definitely will definitely talk to you so you can understand and try to just grasp the depth of, you know, what lupus is, especially as an autoimmune disease, which amongst other autoimmune diseases that are out there. Definitely. And yeah, just as you said, when I was doing my research, I was like, I never knew that about you. And I never would have guessed just based off the way you carry yourself. So I applaud you for carrying that weight. Um, but my next question to you is, can you take us back to the moment that you were diagnosed and how you were feeling? Yeah, sure. So if I bring you back to when I was diagnosed, you said when I was 12, right? Yeah. And that was actually October 2001. So this coming October will be my 20-year, I guess, anniversary of my diagnosis with lupus. And so without going into too many details, because it can, it can take a little bit, but my first experience, it really wasn't the classic. So I presented with high fevers, 
for several days and some other GI issues. So that's your, your stomach and gastro in or out, um, those things. And I remember that first experience when I just kept, I'll say throwing up. I'm sorry on this podcast. <laughs> um, I would look at my mom and I, was, I did say like, you know, when will this be over? So we, at that point, we didn't know exactly what it was. And so soon I was admitted to Moses Cone Hospital. And at that point, they became with the preliminary diagnosis of lupus. And um, if you talk about full circle, I end up working with the attending who took care of me, which wow. I found out at the end of my residency um, at that time. And so, you know, I was taken care of then, but end up being confirmed the diagnosis at UNC on a Tuesday. And it was in a clinic. And they decided at that time that I was not stable enough to go home. And I was readmitted to the hospital. Yeah. And during that time, I will say there was a period of discouragement because I was hoping that moving forward, I was going to get better, get back into things. And I don't necessarily knew I fully grasped that this was a long-term diagnosis, but I also knew that it could be because my grandmother, my aunt, um, at least two of my aunts, my cousin and her daughter um, also have lupus. So wow. it definitely runs deep within my family. And so during those times of you know surprise and discouragement, I had a family friend that visited me in the hospital and talked to me about just getting over, getting through this battle and that I would make it through this battle. And, and he prayed with me as well as my family. And I had the encouragement to move forward at that time. And so I remember one day, and I'll end with this, is I was sitting at the table and I said, you know, we don't know what all what lupus entails, but I said, how would I want people to remember me? And this is me 12 out sitting at the table and I said, I want people to remember me as somebody joyful, as somebody cheerful, someone that's helpful, and some other things that I wanted people to remember me as in the event this did not go the way that I wanted it to go, which gladly I'm here now, and that was great. But um, at that point, I think that kind of changed my mindset and moving forward and um, just going after my dreams. Wow. Man, this whole episode is about to be about Things coming full circle because everybody in in my house is annoyed with me because my current new thing is Hamilton and I've watched it like five times, but it's just so good. And um, at the end of the movie and really throughout the show, um, they repeat a line. It, it says, um, you have no control who lives, who dies and who tells your story. And I think it's just so impactful that even at the age of 12, you took the time out, even though it was through some unfortunate circumstances, you took the time out to really think about how would I want to be remembered? And if things don't turn out the way that I want, I still have the power to change the narrative and change how today looks. So I think that's just a really powerful um, sentiment. Um, and I also read during that um, interview that you did with the Greensboro News and Record that your experiences in the hospital and in the clinics kind of inspired you to go through the medical track. So can you tell me how that kind of went for you? Yeah, great question. So I first decided I want to be a pediatrician starting in kindergarten, so five years old. And so each step of getting to that point just pushed me further and further into it. And so with this experience of now having lupus, it opened a wider arena so that I can also see what it is like to be a doctor from the patient's perspective. And so I think that is what kind of helped continue to mold my desire to become a doctor and a pediatrician. And I think it also makes me the kind of doctor I am today because not only am I a doctor and understanding kind of what the patient and 
diagnosing and doing those things of that sort, but kind of giving you the empathy and sympathy with the patients because I've been that patient before. As well as recently, I've had, you know, a death in the family back in October. And so and other family members going through certain things with my father, um, I'm able to see it from the family member's perspective. And so I think it gives me another, I, um, a better view of how the patient feels because I can see it from all arenas. And so, as I mentioned, I try to find the silver lining in everything. And so with all these experiences, I think it brings me closer and closer to my patients. And if I say, looking even further, you know, why did I become a pediatrician? So pediatrician, I see it more than just a healer or somebody prescribing medications. It's somebody who's a teacher. It's a nutritionist. It's a therapist. Um, You're being that role model. And I never knew that experience that you had with me, seeing me come in the office. And so, I, you know, learning to be myself and go in there. That's why I really love my practice at Greensboro Pediatricians and every other place I go because I can be me. I'm very happy and I laugh and I do that and I love to do that in the office. I'm, I, like, I like my shoes. Uh, <laughs> I got that from my sister and my family. They're all a little fashionistas in their own way and form. And, you know, just loving your hair, loving yourself as a black woman as you're going forth. Because, like you said, there's somebody looking out for you. And so I knew I didn't get here by myself. And so my hope is that by getting through this whole process that I'm making a difference, um, whether big or small. Perfect. So we're going to go right. You actually streamlined into like three questions that I had. But um, I actually want to start with pointing out something you said about being a black woman um, and, and specifically the medical space, but just in each space in your life. So. I know that in today's society, it can be like a certain pressure on um, minority women, but black women specifically to be like the strong black woman, to have yourself together, whether it be um, in the way your attitude is or your hairstyle. So how has like being a black woman, how have you navigated life sort of having that pressure? Has it like, have you ever let it get to you or? Great question. Um, I will say part of, it's like a, it's a twofold question, I guess you can right. say, of how I felt. Um, throughout this whole journey, um, as I'm learning through life, different aspects of where I've been in my training and then my family has helped to build that confidence that I have. And so from my high school, going to a predominantly black high school, James Benson, Dudley Senior High School in Greensboro, and you know, I was on like the SGA and they really cultivated me to move forward when I was at church. Working in there, didn't they didn't they didn't despise me just because I was young. They let me they develop my leadership skills and things of that sort, and going to A and T and developing that um, that oomph to just keep going on and just saying like you are your own person and making you aware of these struggles that you could potentially face going it out into a world with people who don't necessarily look like you. And so, with me moving forward, even going to ECU. Um, which is a predominantly white institution, there was a feeling within my mind of, I am different. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, they're the people who I have to figure out my circle, who I could trust going forward. Right. And I don't, and I'm not saying that any of them said anything to me that made me feel uncomfortable, but it was a difference. It was a difference from going to an A&T where your culture being cultivated and there's that family member or I'm texting my advisor or things of that sort. And so 
being that now this black woman in medicine, you are, you have to, they, there's that label of being that strong black woman. And so I'm learning and more, more, learning more and more to put, try to take that off of strong because you, you keep saying I'm strong, but then there's a, this connotation of I don't talk about my feelings or I don't cry or things of that sort. And so now, even with my patients and my family, whenever you're going through something, I always say, yes, we're strong, but strong also means that you can cry, that you can break down it sometimes because that's something that you can do to make you and grow and move forward. And so for me and myself, there is that thing, or there have been times, especially when I was in medical school, because I'm a short black woman, I, when I look young um, and going in there and people say things like, you don't look young enough, old enough to be a doctor. And then, but I am, <laughs> and right. I've gone through these things. And so there is this point of when you have to go in, I do address myself as doctor so that you understand, because so unfortunately, some of my counterparts, they don't necessarily have to say that. There is a understanding when they walk into the room that they are the doctor and not being confused with the housekeeper. You're not being confused with um, the nursing staff, which nurses are great. So that's not a bad connotation, but there is this idea when you walk in of who you are already. And so you're building that name for yourself going forward without having the thoughts of not you're strong or you're the angry black woman having these names that are put with you. So I know that was a long answer. Hopefully I no, answered that perfect. question for you. Yeah, you definitely did. And now we're going to take a little break from the questions and we're going to play a little game of song association. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, and just to reiterate the game to you, um, song association, I'll give you a word. I'll give you 10 seconds on the clock and then you will give me a song back with that word and the lyrics or the title. Got it? Okay. Are you ready for a challenge? We're ready, ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> so we're going to jump right in with your first word, which is family. Ten seconds on the clock. Oh, I can sing it now. Mm-hmm. We are a family like a giant tree. That's good. That's it. All right. So, oh, we are really going on theme with the Dream Girls last <laughs> week and this week. Yeah. So your next word is sick. Ten seconds. Uh... All I can think of is sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that works. I don't know that song. But I guess that works. But she still got four seconds. You're going to think of something else. Two, one. <laughs> <laughs> so for that one, I had um, So Sick by Neo. Because I'm so sick of... Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yep, there we yep, go. Yep. That's a good one. For your third word, I have black. Ten seconds on the clock. Is this a, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna sing works. brown skin girl, but that's they don't have black in there. Um, that works. I have um, black parade by Beyonce written down, but don't ask me to sing it. I don't know. I about say I don't know the words to yeah, that one. Yeah, me neither. So your next word, fourth one, is heal. Ten seconds. You said healed. Heal, or you can do healed. Or heal like heal like a mountain. Mm. No, no, or... no. Like healing you. Oh, I'm healing me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, waymaker, miracle worker. No, that's that doesn't have promise keeper. Awesome. That doesn't have healing. Two seconds. <laughs> Church members don't hear this. <laughs> I had um heal the world by Michael Jackson. 
Sing that one. Heal the world, make it a better place. Oh, yeah, for you and <laughs> yeah. for me. Yeah, that's a good yep. one. Yep. And your last and final word is dream, but you can do a variation like dreaming or dreamed. We are dream girls. <laughs> there you go. We really are continuing. Yes. <laughs> so I think, actually, you fall, like, right in the middle. So um, Jasmine got one. Ariel got four. So I think I think it was three. Okay. Right? I like it. So there it. you go. Three is my favorite three, number. Four. There you three go. Three and seven. There you go. Of course. <laughs> All righty. So jumping back into the questions, um, I want to go into your academic journey. Mm-hmm. So post-high school, and, you know, you went to Dudley, mm-hmm. of course. Panther Pride. Right, right. Even though I'm a cowboy, but it's okay. That's we'll all right. <laughs> I didn't choose the cowboy life. It chose me. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I know. It's all right. We'll get through it. <laughs> but um, after your post-high school, you be- I'm sorry, you began your post-high school academic career at A&T. So I want to know what drew you to an HBCU. That is an excellent question. Um, I would even say what drew me to North Carolina, I had to do from my eggs, North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University. Aggie Pride. Okay. Um, (laughs) So what drew me there, there are multiple layers to that. You know, being from Greensboro, I went to Dudley, which we were called Little A&T. And also to Greensboro, you you see homecomings every year. You see the blue and gold. I didn't live too far from A&T. My grandparents don't live too far from there. As well as they went to A&T. My uncle went to A&T, several of my family members. But when I made the decision for myself, as I was learning more and more of making that decision of which college I was going to attend, one um, summer in the 11th grade, I attended a summer program called the Summer Transportation Institute. And I wanted to see, you know, what was really about A&T. And I got to meet the, some of the students who are my counselors, the faculty, as well as some of the staff. And just seeing their love for this school, this HBCU, North Carolina A&T, and how much they just spoke so highly of it. I said, I think this is really where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Dudley in my senior year, I was in early college, so I got to attend A&T um, my 12th grade year. And so I would say, okay, let's allow me to see A&T from this perspective, the academic perspective. Is this something that I want to attend? Because I've seen one side, let me see all of it to get the full aspect. And the professors, they didn't treat me like I was just a high school student. They t- took the time in office hours. They, some of them gave me their cell phone numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I saw it as a family going forward. And then as you probably heard me intertwine some of them, my faith. So I prayed about it. And that was the direction that I felt that the Lord was leading me to go to A&T. And it's the, one of the best decisions that I've ever made. And even looking at you now, the people from that summer program, I know a couple of people still that I still am in contact with. I've got graduated high school several years ago. And even from college, my professors or and my the the director, the dean, and my counselor, my advisor, I still am in contact with. Right. And they helped me even kind of with that question you asked about how do you feel being a black woman in society and just having that extra. They've helped me because they went through this journey. And they said, we've been through this. Like, you've made it through. So that means I can make it through as well. And so... From the point of making that decision to go to A&T and looking back at my experience going through A&T, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great experience. I and mean, if, if we have time, I can talk about just even when I went to ECU of having somebody there from A&T who helped me out. And so um, if we have time a little later, I can let you know that. We as well. will dive into ECU. We definitely will. 
So I'm interested in knowing what was your biggest challenge while you were at A&T and um, how did you overcome it? Great question. So I think the biggest challenge I would say is just being from from high school to going to college. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not necessarily 100% away from my family, but I I stayed on campus all four years. And so learning the science, like you're taking these these difficult courses, biology, um, chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, which in high school I didn't have physics. Um, calculus. So I think learning um, just a higher level of education and being able to balance that as well as with just personal life. And like I did a lot of things with my church and with my family. So getting that balance, I think, was the biggest challenge. Okay. And this is actually a very, um, a very helpful conversation for me as a high school junior. Like I'm trying to navigate, figuring out which college I want to go to and how that whole process works. And of course, it's a kind of difficult because you can't really experience the college firsthand because you can't do the tours. And you can do virtuals, but they're not really the same. So this is very valuable to me as well. And after going to A&T, you got your bachelor's degree in biology at A&T. And you went to ECU for your doctorate. Were there any um, culture shocks going from an HBCU to a PWI or a predominantly white institution? I will say... There, I think that I realized later that it was a little of a culture shock to me mm-hmm. because, you know, I went to Dudley and I went to A&T. And so just seeing people's different perspectives going forward. Um, additionally, I'll give you an example of the contrast between A&T and ECU. When I was in the honors program, I had I, I did a did research over the summer and I had yet to create my poster. And you'll learn about that. You'll create your poster, talk about your research and things of that sort. But my academy advisor, she said, well, we got to get you to a conference. And I said, well, Mrs. Williamson, I don't have my, my poster. She said, well, we're going to go ahead and work on that because I've already signed you up for this conference. And oh, I want wow. you to present this and we're going in a few weeks. And so I was like, oh, OK. So we got that together. She worked with me on things. So she saw something that I that I had the potential for. And instead of waiting on me, she just kind of pushed me into that direction. At ECU, and it also comes in just being a professional school. You're a little bit on your little bit more independence, a little bit more autonomy, and you have to just look out for yourself. And so it was kind of hard starting off because I had to learn a whole new system. Growing up, I had two older sisters, so I could always watch what they did going forward. But I didn't have any immediate family that were doctors. I do have some cousins that are doctors, and probably looking back, I probably could have reached out to them more. But for that perspective, it was I was walking into a new arena. And so that was different for me. And even being a, one thing that I guess changed it to is I, there was a medical student who was two years above me who went to A&T, who were, we weren't that close at A&T, but because he knew I went there, he said, India, if you ever need anything, let me know, let me know. And that's something I would be like, I, I can figure it out. I'll get to that point in which I learned that, you know, get help early. And so, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he wanted to, he was planning to go into surgery. I remember this because it was third year. He wanted to go in surgery. That's his, and his, that's what he's in residency, almost finishing up now. And I text him, I was sitting and I was like, I don't think I want to pass this exam. It's not going to be the greatest. Can you help me? He said, yeah. We met up at Starbucks. And at that day, he said, we're going to look back on this day and we're going to see how you overcame this. And we do. And we're both, <laughs> and I'm out of medical school and all that. But he took the time with me to learn and to learn, teach me how to study from a medical school perspective. And so that difference of that culture shock, he kind of provided that for me and helped me with that, which is not always there. 
Um, and so I think that was the difference of me trying to adjust from an HBCU to a PWI. Okay. So, and I'm telling you, you're going right into each question beautifully. Oh, sweet. So now that you're here, you've graduated from A&T, you received your doctorate from ECU, you finished your residency, and now you're a pediatrician. How does it feel to be in this place in your life after you've finished all the hard work? You know, sometimes I'm in disbelief. I'm like, I'm truly a doctor. I'm somebody's pediatrician. And um, I'm back in Greensboro where I grew up and things coming so full circle. And it's amazing. And I was actually talking with my colleagues the other day of just, and even this morning, just how uh, it's an honor that I am given the opportunity to take care of people who I went to school with or just different walks of life. And now they're saying, hey, I trust you and your medical judgment to take care of my child. And I'm very, I'm so humbled by it. And it even pushes me and propels me to, to learn and more, learn more and more each day. And so I'm in amazement. Um, not saying these days aren't challenging, um, but it's something that I would not change for the world. Beautiful. All right. And since we're in the full circle spirit, um, before we're on our last two questions, and before I end with you, I wanted to take us back to the beginning of my podcast series. Um, I think one of the first questions I asked my guest, which was my mom that day, was I had just finished the book um, Millionaire, Millionaire Mind by Thomas Stanley, and it was really good. And in the book, he compiled a list of keys to success, and I wanted to know what yours would be. Keys to success. I think one of the things, the keys to success is to remain humble, to always keep on learning. Because even though I'm a physician, I'm learning every single day. I'm always reading. I'm talking to my colleagues and things of that sort. Um, sometimes even just putting yourself in other shoes, not, not saying compare yourself, but knowing that everybody is going through their own private journey. And so how can you, as your person, you know, help yourself, and if that's a part of helping others, do the same and propel people along their path and journey. So keys to success, yes, remaining humble, um, learning always, um, and remember where you came from because a lot of times I know with medicine, there's burnout, there you're fatigued, you forget all these things. But if sometimes just remembering to the point of when you first wanted to be a doctor, when you first wanted to get to where you are, when you're first developing your your first your organization, your <laughs> um your 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 nonprofit, you know, how did you feel at that point whenever you're having those down moments? And so I know there's so many other keys to success that goes there. Um, but those are like the first that come to my mind. Perfect. And my very last question to you, what advice would you give to this upcoming generation? So my advice would be to never give up. Uh, everybody has their own journey, their own pathway to what they're going to be in the long run. Whether you fail along the way, the biggest key is getting back up and moving forward. Two is, I made a mention of don't compare yourself because we don't know what they're going through. Only person that you can control is yourself. And so whenever you see that, feeling of comparison, you stop yourself and say, no, this is my journey. I'm going to keep going. And then one quote I always just tell myself and just kind of have been my mantra going forward is to step above the plateau of complacency, 
to build the mountain of success and to provide a ladder of opportunity so that others can follow. You didn't get here by yourself. So once you achieve your goals, start helping others to come with you. That's how we're going to end our last episode of the Chase Your Dream series. Got me all choked up. Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Fry, for coming in and having this conversation with me. And thank you guys to the listeners for always tuning in and for all of your support. I hope this series has been as fulfilling for you as it has been for me. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Renaissance Project, a Black girls movement. Want to join the combo? Contact me via Instagram at the Renaissance P-R-J-C-T or you can email me at the Renaissance P-R-J-T at gmail.com. If you feel led to donate, you can do so by sending your funds to dollar sign Chase AC7 on Cash App. It is not required, but definitely encouraged. That's all from me. I hope to see you next Thursday. Until then, be well. Be well.